I next met with NSABP Chair Dr. Norman Walmark, who presented to me several patients from his practice that posed interesting challenges, beginning with an older woman with what appeared to be a triple positive cancer. This was an 80-year-old white female who presented to us with a 4-millimeter carcinoma in the upper outer quadrant of her left breast. And a sonographically directed core biopsy showed that this was an invasive ductal carcinoma that was positive for ER, negative for PR, and was 3-plus, HER2 positive, on IHC. So we went ahead and did a left segmental mastectomy and a sentinel node resection, and she had two negative sentinel nodes, and an extent of disease investigation was negative. So here is the dilemma. Are we going to take this individual who's 80 years old, doesn't have any comorbid conditions, whose life expectancy is about 11 years, and treat her with chemotherapy and trastuzumab? Plus hormone therapy when she gets through. Plus hormone so therapy she's kind of a when triple, she gets through. Exactly. Right. So the prevailing belief would be, well, you know, she's 3 plus IHC for her too. How can you withhold trastuzumab from this individual? Just to backtrack a little bit, because the thing I thought was so interesting just to begin, of course, it gets even more interesting, is first of all, her age being 80, as you brought up but also the size being four millimeters because there's this huge controversy about smaller, node-negative, HER2-positive tumors. What's your general approach been, or what do you think is a rational approach in terms of size and whether they should get trastuzumab? I hear a lot of people talking about, well, under five millimeters, even if it is HER2-positive, I'm not going to consider trastuzumab. What are your thoughts? Well, we just don't know. This is the problem. The problem is that there's a paucity of data available for tumors that are small. And if you add the other aspects of an individual who's 80 years old, I think it just makes the dilemma more marked. One of the issues is what's the prognosis of these patients with the smaller node-negative lesions? There have been a few smaller databases, but in San Antonio, the MD Anderson group reported some data on that, but that was just lumping everybody under one centimeter. Right, and when you do relative risk analysis and forest plots, they still benefit. But on the other hand, you're really running out of any kind of power to make any definitive statements relative to that particular subset. Although overall, this paper reported, I think, about a 23% recurrence rate at five years. I remember right after the adjuvant trastuzumab data were presented, we did a meeting with the NSABP, an education meeting, where we were talking about this, and Dennis Slayman, some of the BCRG people were there. And the idea was floating around about what about trastuzumab without chemo? I mean, so for, you know, 80-year-old, maybe a little bit frail woman, maybe you could skip the chemo. But now, three, four years later, you don't see that much of that being done. No, I think if you make the decision to treat, I think you ought to treat with what you believe is the best regimen. And I think that concomitant chemo with trastuzumab is certainly the standard of care. Now, one of the options... Very important option for any patient and patients with HER2 positive disease is to participate in the study. So you're doing the Beth trial right now. What's that looking at and would she be eligible? She would be eligible and Beth is looking at the addition of bevacizumab to 
trastuzumab, you know, based on a lot of compelling preclinical data and data from phase two trials in the human setting. So, and there it's interesting too that you, and this is a trial you're doing with the CIRG together, the chemo there doesn't include an anthracycline. And for the surgeons, there's this gigantic controversy that's been going on in the last few years. Do you need anthracyclines and the exposure to cardiac risk? Can you talk about your thoughts about that whole controversy and some of the discussions went on in choosing a non-anthracycline regimen for the study? Well, I think we were certainly influenced by BCIRG006. And when adding bevacizumab to trastuzumab, I think our bias was to pick a regimen that has the least cardiotoxicity because we really didn't want to end up in a situation where we did run into issues related to cardiotoxicity that would undermine the entire trial. On the other hand, the trial does make allowances, not in the U.S. with BCIRG and the NSABP, but in Europe to use an anthracycline template if the investigators so desire. But our preference was certainly to proceed with a non-anthracycline template. And we've seen in our patterns of care studies, initially there wasn't that much of a change in practice, but somehow it started about a year and a half ago where real major shift away from anthracyclines towards this TCH regimen. I guess the other thing about the Beth study is that bevacizumab can cause hypertension, so you know, maybe a little bit more concern about the heart there, I guess. Yeah, certainly. So I think the point of this case is that even if she was IHC 3+, plus, and she was HER2 positive, again, the belief is that these are all high-risk patients. So you think that Either you or your oncologist you work with, if it was a non-trial situation for this woman, would have raised the issue of chemotrastuzumab? Yeah, I think it certainly would have raised the issue. But, you know, from my standpoint, we do have another assay that could examine risk in this individual. Yeah, and that was pretty interesting. And that's the Oncotype DX. And again, I mean, there's an impression out there that – Don't do the Oncotype DX in a HER2-positive individual because they all fall into the high-risk category. Number one, they don't all fall into the high-risk category. Some fall into the intermediate category. But I think the point that is germane to this particular case is that when you get a IHC 3-plus for HER2 from a local hospital lab, Are you going to take that at face value, particularly when you're dealing with an 80-year-old individual with a 4-millimeter tumor? And I made the decision that I'm not going to take that at face value. And I did, in fact, send the tumor for an Oncotype DX. Why didn't you just send it for fish? Well, we could have sent it for fish, but the lab said, well, you know, you already have an IHC that's three plus. And rather than begging and adopting a supplicant position, we decided to send it for an Oncotype DX. Get lots of new information. And to our surprise, the Oncotype DX indicated that the HER2 fell in the normal range. She was ER positive. And armed with that data, we convinced our own lab to go ahead and do a fish on it. And as it turned out, the fish was negative. Wow. What was the recurrence score? 
The recurrence score was 18. So she's just an ER positive, HER2 negative tumor? Precisely. Precisely. So the question arises, what is the frequency with which this kind of situation occurs? Well, also, what does it mean? It is an RT-PCR assay. Do we know that, for example, HER2 being analyzed there is predictive in the same way that IHC in fish for HER2 is? We don't know if it's predictive as far as the benefit of Herceptin because we don't have that data relative to NSABP protocol B31. Or anything uh, else. Or or to similar protocols, and I think it would be nice to have that information. On the other hand, what this assay did compel us to do was to reassess the entire situation. And when we reassessed the entire situation and had another objective parameter for her too, we came up with an entirely different conclusion and led us to demonstrate that the IHC 3+, from the local lab, was in error. So she now is about to avoid chemotrastuzumab. Absolutely. Which would not have helped her. She was able to avoid therapy, which is not an easy regimen, that would not have helped her. The whole issue of ER and HER2 is really relevant for surgeons. I mean, maybe helping to make sure that gets done right might be the most important thing a surgeon could do, I think. So obviously now, such a critical part of the algorithm of treatment, and obviously there are problems with the ER too. Where do you think RT-PCR and tests like Oncotype are going to fit in as we move forward in terms of trying to get better information to deal with? Well, I think that the Oncotype model or an evolution of that, be it Oncotype or another objective molecular-based assay is what's going to drive therapeutic decision-making. And I'm always amazed and amused at how the morphologic pathologist will rant and rave against a statement of that nature that I just made. On the other hand, I think that pathologists really ought to be embracing this and really be on the leading edge of moving the state of the art forward to really have a molecular taxonomy of breast cancer rather than stating that I am the human flow cytometer. Let's talk about your second patient, the 60-year-old woman. So this is a 60-year-old individual who we initially treated in November of 06 for a a two-and-a-half-centimeter carcinoma that was ERPR positive and HER2 new negative, and 22 axillary nodes were negative. And I believe I did a node dissection because her nodes showed uptake on an MRI, but I don't recall that very clearly. In any event, we did an Oncotype DX that indicated a recurrence score of 9, which translates to a 10-year risk of distant recurrence of 6%. Great. We made the decision not to treat her with chemotherapy, but we're talking about patients that we see in our practice, and we have variables that are less than ideal. And so just this, before you go on to that, I mean, just to reflect back before you continue, 2.5 centimeter tumor, this lady would have gotten chemo for absolute sure five years ago before the oncotype. Without any question. So, you know, it's really, at a human level, amazing to think about that. Here's this woman who just avoided having to go through that whole experience. Yes, yes. But of course, in retrospect, 
we might want to revisit okay, that well, issue as the case evolves. Yes, okay. So we, each of these cases, we start out and sort of average, and then it kind of gets interesting. So right. what happened with her? So this patient had multiple sclerosis had insurance issues. Is she very disabled from the MS? Not especially, no. Mm, right. And was unable to get reimbursement for her aromatase inhibitor and did not wish to go on tamoxifen. She was concerned about the risk of endometrial carcinoma, deep vein thrombosis. So despite our best efforts, we were unable to convince her to go on tamoxifen. So then within a two-year period, or almost within a two-year period, she became aware of a small chest wall nodularity, and we went ahead and did a core biopsy of this chest wall nodularity, which turned out to be a scar recurrence, and we performed a wide resection of this with clear margins. It was a one-centimeter invasive in-scar recurrence that was still ERPR positive, and her two new negative on fish analysis. So this individual would have been eligible for NSABP protocol 37, which is an international consortium trial done with the IBCSG, with BIG, to determine what the optimum treatment would be of either an IBTR or a local regional recurrence. And what's that trial looking at? This trial is looking at whether chemotherapy added to hormonal therapy, if appropriate, or to HER2-targeted therapy is salutary. So it's sort of an adjuvant chemo study for local recurrence. Right. It's a neo-neo-adjuvant, as it were, for local regional recurrence and IBTR. And the docs get a lot of leeway in with chemo. They get enormous leeway as far as chemo, as far as radiotherapy is concerned. And this trial has been open, certainly, in the U.S. since January of 05, and the sample size is rather modest, 265. The sample size has been reduced from the initial 900 and some odd patients, and we have 143 patients randomized. The point is there is very little known about local regional recurrence and the treatment of ipsilateral breast tumor recurrence. And also you've got this thing from the past that her primary, which is theoretically the same tumor based on the oncotype, maybe isn't going to respond to chemo. We don't know. But certainly the original one, that was the, the thought. Precisely. So we offered the trial to her. Now, the overall incidence, 10 years of ipsilateral breast tumor recurrence in node-positive patients is approximately 9%. Local regional recurrence is 6%. But once that event occurs, it is an indicator of a high risk of developing distant disease. For IBTR, it's about 50% at five years of distant disease-free survival. But for local regional recurrence, that drops to approximately 20%. So these are high-risk patients. So the natural reflex response would be to treat these individuals with chemotherapy. And yet, we really don't have the data to support that. And that's why B37 I think is a very interesting trial because we really have no objective data to determine what the optimum intervention would be. And it's amazing to think you can get an answer with a couple hundred patients. 
Well, it's 265 patients, and the reason that the sample size was reworked was, one, that we thought that we had the power to be able to come up with an answer with a decreased sample size. And as you can see, the trial has been open for a number of years, and accrual has not been robust. So again, this is an important study, which will answer an important question, certainly provide us with insight relative to the biology of local regional recurrence and IBTR. We all treat IBTR based on our own personal algorithms, not necessarily enhanced by data. So how did she respond to the idea of the trial? Well, she listened very attentively, and of course, we're talking about patients that we've seen and dealt with, and she declined to participate in the trial. Was it she was thinking she didn't want to get chemo, or she did want to get chemo, or what was going on there? She didn't know. Hmm. But again, I think it's important that if patients are to participate in clinical trials, that they need to be enthusiastic about it. Clinical trials are not about selling used cars. And, you know, anytime there's a randomization of chemo versus no chemo, it's not easy. That certainly is a contributing factor. But on the other hand, if you see that a patient is not enthusiastic or there's trepidation or that there isn't a good, clear understanding about what's involved in the clinical trial. I think one is best served, and certainly the patient is best served, not to be coerced into participating in a trial in which that individual is not comfortable. So she didn't want to go on the trial. What about off-protocol therapy? Ah, so here was the dilemma. What are we going to do? I mean, first, her recurrence score on the index tumor was very favorable. And for that reason, we chose not to proceed with chemotherapy. We certainly would not have chosen not to proceed with hormonal therapy, but the reality was that she did not receive hormonal therapy. So we decided to do something that I think was very helpful. We sent the SCAR tumor recurrence for an Oncotype DX. And after a number of phone calls from GHI to say, have you lost your frame of reference, they went ahead and did it. And within a two-year period, we see a dramatic increase in risk from the 6% risk of distant recurrence of the index lesion to a 17% risk of distant recurrence if we were to assume that this was a primary lesion of the INSCAR recurrence, showing that this was a remnant that was far more aggressive than the index lesion. And the recurrence score went from 9 to 26. But on the other hand, it didn't go to 50. I mean, I guess you're saying that the prognosis based on just looking at the tissue has gotten worse. And what was her response in terms of getting chemo? What were you thinking? To give her chemo? Yes. Interesting. And we ended up giving her chemo based on this finding. So what about the hormone therapy? Was she able to do that? Yes. And what did she receive? Well, this is a recent case. What kind of chemo are you giving her, incidentally? Or is your oncologist giving her? My oncologist is giving her TC. It's the Jones Regimen. Yeah, that's the docetaxel cyclophosphamide. Precisely. That, that kind of ties back to what we were saying before about the anthracyclines, because in the HER2 negative, we're also seeing a lot less anthracyclines, and that TC regimen has been pretty popular. So she's receiving it now? Yes. Interesting. It kind of reminds me in terms of what you've done here in a way of neoadjuvant oncotype 
which I guess there was an Italian study that looked at it, but it's surprising there's not more out there. You've got your NSABP B40 neoadjuvant study. I know that you're doing translational stuff on that. That's chemo plus or minus bevacizumab. But it seems like it makes sense to look at something like Oncotype or RTP assay and tumors that are not just primaries. Right. And B37 would be an ideal vehicle yeah, to look at Oncotype. Exactly. And as you've emphasized in the past, Neil, and this is something with which we passionately agree, you know, long after we've forgotten what the specific aims of a particular trial were, that the most important contribution of that trial is the annotated tissue library. Totally, totally. And here for B37, if we were to have an annotated tissue library and we're able to do something along the lines of Oncotype DX or type it with the molecular assay, I think we would make an incremental leap. Let's just finish up here because I know you put in your case right up and you just mentioned that she's going to get hormone therapy and she's postmenopausal, so she's getting aromatase inhibitor. Just to touch base in terms of stuff that's going on in the last year in terms of hormone therapy, there were some things at the San Antonio meeting that were interesting, particularly to reflect back to the surgeons who might not be hearing about it. One, there was like this little mini meta-analysis of aromatase inhibitors that was presented. And then right after that was the big 98 study that not only looked at an AI and tamoxifen, but the two different switching strategies in the middle of the five years. What was your take on those two papers? Well, they were interesting papers. On the other hand, will my standard of care change as far as starting patients on aromatase inhibitors? Certainly not. No, I think it reinforced it, I think it absolutely reinforced that. I think starting with an aromatase inhibitor in postmenopausal patients is certainly standard, and I think that the data that were presented, even with those somewhat non-conventional and original endpoints, reinforced that. A lot of people were disappointed that the switching strategy wasn't better than just given five years of an AI, particularly the idea of using an AI first and then tamoxifen, and certainly wasn't better. I'm not even sure it was as good. I agree. So, yeah, I think people came out of there saying, okay, well, we're going to continue with the five years of the AI. But the other issue that comes up in terms of hormonal therapy, of course, this is five years down the line for this woman, so hopefully we'll have some answers, is how long. And I'm curious about your take. There's some data over the last year looking at tamoxifen again in terms of duration, but particularly the issue of the aromatase inhibitors where you have your B42 study that's going on, and there's also other studies, including MA17 extension, looking at duration of aromatase inhibitors. Can you kind of review that whole issue? Yeah, I think that's an important question. We don't want to be in another tamoxifen dilemma where, you know, it took B14 and years and years to determine, certainly for no negative ER positive population, that 10 years of tamoxifen added no advantage to five years of tamoxifen. Not only did it not add an advantage, the adverse events relative to endometrial carcinoma and DVT continued between five and 10 years, and that fixed the five-year duration of tamoxifen. Although I guess in the interim, for at least for postmenopausal patients, they got started on AI, so it kind of yeah, lost so, its relevance. So, of course, it became an anachronism. And, of course, when something becomes an anachronism, I think that's good news because it means that progress has been made. 
So I guess in premenopausal women, we were delighted. Women, in premenopausal women, we're still left with, and would have been left with, a dilemma. So we wanted to address that issue relative to aromatase inhibitors, and this is what we're doing with NSABP protocol B42, and that's in essence comparing five years of letrozole to ten years of letrozole. And this trial was opened in August of '06. And 2,200 patients have been randomized out of uh, required 3,840 patients. We learned our lessons from B14 because there are issues related to compliance, and you really want to have a cadre of individuals who've completed five years of an aromatase inhibitor ready to be re-randomized. So we registered an additional 2,700 patients who all received five years of letrozole or combination of tamoxifen followed by letrozole who are going to be eligible to be randomized to five versus 10 years. I think it's interesting to see how people have been thinking this thing through off-study over the last few years because, of course, it's going to be a while before you have answers. But initially, investigators and docs in practice were just, okay, you're not on a study. We're stopping you at five years. And then we started to see a pretty big pickup in use of non-protocol continuation, particularly in patients with node-positive tumors. Clearly, we don't have any data, so the question is, well, why are people changing what they do? We think that it's because people became more aware of the quantitative risk, that even though we had this sort of general idea that people can have relapses in year 5 to 10, that we really start looking at the numbers, it's pretty impressive. I mean, we're talking to Terry Mamunas, I guess, in planning this study, you're looking at patient with no positive tumor, maybe having a 20% five-year risk of recurrence between year five and 10. Yeah, the conditional probabilities continue. I, I mean, mean if, if someone is, is free of disease at five years, the risk with ER positive disease from five to 10 years is not insignificant. Even in no negative patients, I guess the number I've heard is about 10% recurrence in five years. So, I mean, that's low, but it's not that low. And if you can impact it, certainly that would be a huge issue. What do we know about the issue of trying to impact an ER-positive tumor down the line in years 5 and 10? Well, we don't. We intuitively believe that tamoxifen was vitamin T. You remember that era. I mean, tamoxifen for life. And we discovered that tamoxifen was not vitamin T. And that giving tamoxifen for 10 years, certainly in in the B14 population, was not only not helpful, that it had adverse events associated with it. So this was counterintuitive. I mean, we all have our biases. So we would think that giving aromatase inhibitors for 10 years would be better than giving it for five years. And yet we really don't know. We just plain don't know. I guess, on the other hand, it's not in exactly the same situation, but when the MA17 trial was reported of using aromatase inhibitor after five years of tamoxifen, that's not the same thing as continuing tamoxifen, but it was still interesting to me that they saw big drops in recurrence rates between years five and ten, suggesting you can still potentially have an impact on this almost chronic cancer. Yes, yes especially with the R-positive you know, yeah, exactly. Disease where the conditional probability is still significant. Right. I remember when this first started to get talking about people were saying, well, maybe this is kind of be like follicular lymphoma, which we're getting involved with educationally. And the more I've been thinking about follicular lymphoma and that sort of long-term history, it's not totally irrelevant. 
Let's talk about your 50-year-old lady with a DCIS. This is a great one in terms of what you're doing research-wise. Yeah, I think this gives us an opportunity to discuss our current DCIS trial, B43, which I think is a very innovative trial, which deals with HER2-positive DCIS. It's the only DCIS trial that we have open right now, now that B35 has been completed. You know, that was the aromatase Tamoxifen versus an aromatase inhibitor. Speaking of that, any projections on when we might see some data? Not for a while. How about safety data? The Data Monitoring Committee reviews the safety data on a regular basis, and there have been no issues that warranted modification or notification of the members. I'd like to see the betting line on that trial, actually, now that you think about it. We think we know what it's going to show, but I guess we need to see it. There's nothing like data. Can you talk a little bit about this woman, how she presented? So this was a 50-year-old premenopausal female who, on stereotactic core biopsy, was noted to have DCIS, large cell comedonecrosis. It was sent to an eminent third-party pathologist to confirm the diagnosis, and that, in fact, happened. She underwent a right segmental mastectomy without a sentinel node resection, which I don't do for DCIS. She had a 5-millimeter focus of DCIS, and it was ER negative, PR negative, and her two new 3-plus. Could you just stop for a second and mention the demographics of ER and HER2 and DCIS? What fractions ER positive? What fractions HER2 positive? I think that's a good question. We don't know a whole lot about that. You would think that we would have a large data repository relative to that distribution, and yet there really is a remarkable paucity of data. Particularly, First, I guess, HER2. People haven't even thought about looking at well, that. Well, no. HER2, even going back years, was always a discriminant that was stated to put the patient at increased risk. The real significance of HER2 and DCIS, I think, remains a little bit more enigmatic. First of all, DCIS has a much higher proportion of HER2 new positive disease than invasive cancer. Right. So for invasive, we're looking maybe 20, 25 percent. Yeah. And some series, and admittedly small retrospective series, have HER2 new positive DCIS as high as 50 percent. Even if it's ER positive HER2, that there are series that have shown a 20 to 25 percent incidence of HER2 positive disease. And when you see HER2-positive DCIS, do you see sort of negative predictors, as in this woman with the comedonecrosis? We don't know. Certainly the small series to which we've just alluded would have you believe that that is, in fact, the case. And based on the previous work that the group's done, I guess you would expect there's really no reason to think about giving her tamoxifen if we know for sure that the tumor's ER negative. Right. I mean, based on the subset analysis that Craig Allred did on the B24 data, that the ER negative group did not benefit from tamoxifen and had twice the likelihood of developing an event in the ipsilateral breast. So then what happened? So how would we treat this individual? I mean, if we were to treat this individual off protocol, we would simply treat her with radiotherapy. On the other hand, here we have protocol B43, which was just started in November of 08, 
which I think is an elegant study. And it gives two doses of Herceptin, one at the beginning of radiotherapy and one three weeks after the first dose as a radio sensitizer. I've been talking to Melody Coblet about this for years. It's amazing. She's the PI, right? Melody brought this concept oh, to the NSABP in 2003. Yeah. Now, when people talk about how slow things are to transition from concept to reality, this is an egregious example. And there are multiple factors that went into this. But this concept, which we thought was provocative, innovative from the day it was brought to us and presented in 2003 – has taken this many years to bring to fruition and to reality where this trial has been open. It's just been open in, in November of 08. There have been 15 patients randomized out of an estimated sample size of 2,000. We're hoping for a hazard ratio of approximately 0.64 in reducing the incidence of ipsilateral breast tumor events. Was she on the study? Well, we're talking about, again, what we see in our practice. The patient declined the study. What was the reasoning? The reasoning was, why do I need to take Herceptin for a disease which is seemingly as banal as ductal carcinoma in situ, which isn't going to be a threat to my life? And why do I need something that's potentially cardiotoxic, which, of course, is not the case because Herceptin by itself has not been shown to be cardiotoxic, as we know the data from BCIRG eliminating an anthracycline you know, certainly has no or little incremental effect on cardiotoxicity. Was she the kind of patient who was out there on the Internet and really checking things out or more kind of common to you? Just no, I, I mean, this was not a skewed perspective. It just was not something to which she was particularly receptive. Some patients are just not receptive to clinical trials. And here we discuss a number of cases. And in two situations, we have patients who decline to be randomized. Let's talk about your last patient, the more mature woman you describe. So the whole issue of treating more mature patients with breast cancer, and certainly as the population ages, none of us are getting younger as far as I can determine. So the more mature individual, here we have an 80-year-old patient who presented with a 1.5-centimeter carcinoma that was lobular invasive, highly positive for ERs and PRs, negative for HER2, and she had one of 29 positive axillary nodes. So this is an 80-year-old individual who is in good health, that doesn't have any comorbid variables, so her life expectancy is about 11 years. So if we look at the data from HIMAS, the trial comparing CMF or AC versus Zalota showing clear benefits for CMF or AC over and above Zalota, then you can make an argument that with this individual with one positive node that she ought to be treated with standard chemotherapy. In this situation, AC or CMF. I guess on the other hand, nobody's... Too enthusiastic about giving chemotherapy to people in their 80s, and there are a lot of people in their 80s and 90s in oncology practices. I hear oncologists and 
surgeons, more concerned about those. You don't hear that much about the 65, 70, 75. It's the 80s and the late 80s that problematic. And I think a lot of this is because of the adjuvant online website that people keep going to and they see competing mortality and really thinking, what are we doing here? Competing mortality, but in an individual who does not have any comorbid events or comorbid contributions, her life expectancy is about 11 years. So I think this is a misperception. And I think the trial that was done in women over 65 I think went a long way to provide objective data that these individuals do benefit from chemotherapy. But we have a schism here that on the one hand, we have the data from CLGB and high mus, and then we have the Oncotype DX stating that age ought not to be a discriminant. Biology. Biology is king or perhaps queen, since we don't want to be sexist. So we also have data that Kathy Albain presented showing that you can have an Oncotype DX algorithm that also indicates risk in node-positive patients as well. So here in this 80-year-old with one positive node, would it make sense to proceed with an Oncotype DX? And if she really falls into the low-risk category to avoid chemotherapy. So here we have the schism of a clinical trial showing that robust, healthy 80-year-olds or mature individuals benefit seemingly to the same extent as younger individuals. And yet we see that molecular-based assays would perhaps provide additional information over and above this that would help us in our decision-making process. After Kathy presented those data a little bit, I guess, over a year ago, the first thing people gravitated for was just cases just like this, one positive or microscopic positive, older patient. But I mean, even if you're younger or if you have more positive nodes, if the chemo biologically is not going to help you, even if you have a baseline high recurrence rate, maybe some people might not want it. Yeah, I think it's important not to use the assay as an excuse not to treat. I mean, to say, I really don't want to treat this patient, let's get the assay. I think if you're going to use it, you probably ought to be using it in an unbiased way. I think that the strength of the data for the node-positive population don't approach that for the node-negative. So to say that it ought to become something that we use in our standard practice, I think is a bit of a stretch. Hopefully, there'll be enough data to eventually be able to do that. But at this point in time, I don't think that that is the case. For this particular patient, I think it would make sense to go ahead and do an Oncotype DX. And perhaps I'm perjuring myself and I'm exercising my bias to say I would do the assay so that I can find a reason, an objective reason, not to treat this individual with chemotherapy. So have you sent the assay? No. Are you going to? Yes. Any predictions? I expect she will fall to the low-risk group. Yeah, I hope she does.